Section 4 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. New South Wales, 1800 to 1880. 1. Governor King. Governor Hunter, who left Sydney in the year 1800, was succeeded by Captain King, the young officer who has already been mentioned as the founder of the settlement at Norfolk Island. He was a man of much ability and was both active and industrious. Yet so overwhelming at this time were the difficulties of governorship in New South Wales that his term of office was little more than a distressing failure. The colony consisted chiefly of convicts who were, many of them, the most depraved and hardened villains to be met with in the history of crime. To keep these in check and to maintain order was no easy task, but to make them work, to convert them into industrious and well-behaved members of the community, was far beyond any governor's power. King made an effort and did his very best, but after a time he grew disheartened and, in his disappointment, complained of the folly which expected him to make farmers out of pickpockets. His chances of success would have been much increased had he been properly seconded by his subordinates, but unfortunately circumstances had arisen which caused the officers and soldiers not only to render him no assistance whatever, but even to thwart and frustrate his most careful plans. 2. The New South Wales Corps In 1790, a special corps had been organised in the British Army for service in the colony. It was called the New South Wales Corps and was intended to be permanently settled in Sydney. Very few high-class officers cared to enter this service, so far from home and in the midst of the lowest criminals. Those who joined it generally came out with the idea of quickly gathering a small fortune, then resigning their commissions and returning to England. The favourite method of making money was to import goods into the settlement and sell them at high rates of profit, and, in their haste to become rich, many resorted to unscrupulous devices for obtaining profits. A trade in which those who commanded were the sellers, while the convicts and settlers under their charge were the purchasers, could hardly fail to ruin discipline and introduce grave evils, more especially when ardent spirits began to be the chief article of traffic. It was found that nothing sold so well among the convicts as rum, their favourite liquor, and, rather than not make money, the officers began to import large quantities of that spirit, thus deliberately assisting to demoralise still further the degraded population which they had been sent to reform. So enormous were the profits made in this debasing trade that very few of the officers could refrain from joining it. Soon, 
the New South Wales Corps became like one great firm of spirit merchants engaged in the importing and retailing of rum. The most enterprising went so far as to introduce stills and commence the manufacture of spirits in the colony. By an order of the governor in council this was forbidden, but many continued to work their stills in secret. This system of traffic, demoralising to everyone engaged in it, was shared even by the highest officials in the colony. In the year 1800, the chief constable was a publican, and the head jailer sold rum and brandy opposite the prison gates. 3. State of the Colony Under these circumstances, drunkenness became fearfully prevalent. The freed convicts gave themselves up to unrestrained riot, and, when intoxicated, committed the most brutal atrocities. The soldiers also sank into the wildest dissipation, and many of the officers themselves led lives of open and shameless debauchery. This was the community Governor King had to rule. He made an effort to effect some change, but failed, and we can hardly wonder at the feeling of intense disgust which he entertained and freely expressed. 4. Mutiny of Convicts most of the convicts on their arrival in the colony were assigned, that is, sent to work as shepherds or farm labourers for the free settlers in the country. But prisoners of the worst class were chained in gangs and employed on the roads or on the government farms. One of these gangs, consisting of three or four hundred convicts, was stationed at Castle Hill, a few miles north of Parramatta, the prisoners, emboldened by their numbers and inflamed by the oratory of a number of political exiles, broke out into open insurrection. They flung away their hoes and spades, removed their irons, seized about 250 muskets and marched towards the Hawkesbury, expecting to be there reinforced by so many additional convicts that they would be able to overpower the military. Major Johnston, with 24 soldiers of the New South Wales Corps, pursued them. They halted and turned round to fight, but he charged with so much determination into their midst that they were quickly routed and fled in all directions, leaving several of their number dead on the spot. Three or four of the ringleaders were caught and hanged. The remainder returned quickly to their duty. 5. Origin of Wool Growing During Governor King's term of office, a beginning was made in what is now an industry of momentous importance to Australia. In the New South Wales Corps, there had been an officer named MacArthur, who had become so disgusted with the service that, shortly after his arrival in Sydney, he resigned his commission and, having obtained a grant of land, became a settler in the country. He quickly perceived that wool growing, if properly carried on, would be a source of much wealth and obtained a number of sheep from the Dutch colony at the Cape of Good Hope with which to make a commencement. These were of a kind which did not suit the climate and his first attempt failed. But in 1803, when he was in England on a visit, 
He spoke so highly of New South Wales as a country adapted for wool growing that King George III was interested in the proposal and offered his assistance. Now, the sheep most suitable for MacArthur's purpose were the merino sheep of Spain, but these were not to be obtained as the Spaniards, desirous of keeping the lucrative trade of wool growing to themselves, had made it a capital crime to export sheep of this kind from Spain. But it so happened that, as a special favour, a few had been given to King George, who was an enthusiastic farmer, and when he heard of MacArthur's idea, he sent him one or two from his own flock to be carried out to New South Wales. They were safely landed at Sydney. Governor King made a grant of 10,000 acres to Mr. MacArthur at Camden, and the experiment was begun. It was not long before the most marked success crowned the effort, and in the course of a few years, the meadows at Camden were covered with great flocks of sheep, whose wool yielded annually a handsome fortune to their enterprising owner. 6. Governor Bly In 1806, Governor King was succeeded by Captain Bly, whose previous adventures had made his name so well known. In his ship, the Bounty, he had been sent by the British government to the South Sea Islands for a cargo of breadfruit trees. But his conduct to his sailors was so tyrannical that they mutinied, put him, along with 18 others, into an open boat, then sailed away and left him in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Bly was a skilful sailor, and the voyage he thereupon undertook is one of the most remarkable on record. In an open boat, he carried his little party over 3,500 miles of unknown ocean to the island of Timor, where they found a vessel that took them home. In appointing Captain Bly to rule the colony, the English government spoiled an excellent seaman to make a very inefficient governor. It was true that New South Wales contained a large convict population who required to be ruled with despotic rigour. Yet there were many free settlers who declined to be treated like slaves and felons, and who soon came to have a thorough dislike to the new governor. Not that he was without kindly feeling. His generous treatment of the Hawkesbury farmers, who were ruined by a flood in 1806, showed him to have been warm-hearted in his way. He exerted himself to the utmost, both with time and money, to alleviate their distress and received the special thanks of the English government for his humanity. And yet his arbitrary and unamiable manners completely obscured all these better qualities. He caused the convicts to be flogged without mercy for faults which existed only in his own imagination. He bullied his officers, and, throughout the colony, repeated the same mistakes which had led to the mutiny of the bounty. At the same time, he was anxious to do what he conceived to be his duty to his superiors in England. He had been ordered to put a stop to the traffic in spirits, and, in spite of the most unscrupulous opposition on the part of those whose greed was interested, he set himself to effect this reform by prompt and summary measures, 
and with a contemptuous disregard of the hatred he was causing. But, in the end, the officers were too strong for him, and in the quarrel that ensued, the governor was completely defeated. 7. Expulsion of Bly Month after month, Bly became more and more unpopular. Those whom he did not alienate in the course of his duty, he offended by his rudeness, until, at last, there was scarcely any one in the colony who was his friend. Many were inflamed by so bitter a hatred that they were ready to do anything for revenge, and affairs seemed to be in that critical state in which a trifling incident may bring about serious results. This determining cause was supplied by a quarrel which took place between Mr. MacArthur and Mr. Atkin, the new judge advocate of the colony. Mr. MacArthur was condemned to pay a heavy fine for neglect in having permitted a convict to escape in a vessel of which he was partly the owner. He refused to pay and was summoned before the court, of which Atkin was the president. He declined to appear on the ground that Atkin was his personal enemy. Thereupon Atkin caused him to be seized and put in jail. Bly appointed a special court to try him, consisting of six officers, together with Atkin himself. MacArthur was brought before it, but protested against being judged by his enemy, stating his willingness, however, to abide by the decision of the six officers. The officers supported his protest, and the trial was discontinued. Bly was exceedingly angry, and by declaring he would put the six officers in jail, brought matters to a crisis. The officers of the New South Wales Corps all took part with their comrades. They assisted Mr. MacArthur to get up a petition, asking Major Johnston, the military commander, to depose Governor Bly and himself take charge of the colony. Major Johnston was only too glad of the opportunity. He held a council of officers at which Mr. MacArthur and several others were present. Their course of action was decided upon, and next morning the soldiers marched, with colours flying and drums beating, to the gate of the governor's house. Here they were met by Bly's daughter, who endeavoured to persuade them to retire, but they made her stand aside and marched up the avenue. Meantime, the governor had hidden himself in the house. The soldiers entered and searched everywhere for him, till at length they discovered him behind a bed, where he was seeking to hide important papers. He was arrested, and sentinels were posted to prevent his escape. Major Johnston assumed the governor's position, and appointed his friends to the most important offices in the government service. He continued to direct affairs for some time, until Colonel Favot superseded him. Favot, in his turn, was superseded by Colonel Patterson, who came over from Tasmania to take charge of the colony until a new governor should be sent out from home. Patterson offered Bly his liberty if he would promise to go straight to England and not seek to raise a disturbance in the colony. This promise was given by Bly, and yet no sooner was he free than he began to stir up the Hawkesbury settlers in his behalf. 
They declined to assist him, however, and Bligh went over to Tasmania, where the settlement to be described in the next chapter had been formed. Here he was received with great goodwill until the news arrived from Sydney that, according to the solemn promise he had given, he ought at that time to have been on his way to England. An attempt was made to capture him, but he escaped to England, where his adventures in New South Wales were soon forgotten, and he rose to be an admiral in the English navy. When the news of the rebellion reached the authorities in England, Major Johnston was dismissed from the service, and Major General Lachlan Macquarie was sent out to be governor of the colony. Major Johnston retired to a farm in New South Wales, where he lived and prospered till his death in 1817. End of chapter 4